to their hearts and they too can rejoice. Romans 13. Let me say it this way, okay? It's a new chapter. Whatever book I'm preaching in, I'm going to look at as uh, my new favorite book of the Bible. Okay, wherever I'm at, you're probably that way when your devotional time. Hey, what's your favorite book? Well, right now, it's, if you're in Second John or right now, uh, if you're like us, some of us, you're in First John, that may be your current favorite book. Uh, Romans, guys, I, I, I don't want to overbuild it because we're going to move on from it in about four months from now. And I don't want to be like, yeah, 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 we, we did Romans back in 2017 and 18. That was the best. It'll never be. So I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture, but if I could say it this way, Romans is unsurpassed. It may be unparalleled in its theology. Just a lot of theology. It's taken us places that we didn't know were there and some we probably didn't want to go into and we did that. Very theological book. And then, have you noticed this? Just simple Practical statements can be said, and these things have like major ramifications. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, I'm going to be honest. I came to the pulpit thinking these are just so simple. Everybody can read the text for themselves. They really don't need me. And we just kind of go through it, and I get people commenting on how the Lord used that. And it was so timely. So I'm going to repeat again. This morning, we're going to read seven verses in, in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And it's not a goosebump message. Not every sermon's a goosebump type sermon. Not everyone is one that you're going to necessarily stand up and shout about. No others of these passages through there, you're being like, man, I wanted to. Today may be a little cerebral, though it's not going to be heavily doctrinal. It's going to be practical. And I, I, I believe our middle schoolers, literally our middle schoolers sitting here this morning, as we read this text, they could say, I, I get it. There's nothing deep in this. I totally understand this simple language, simple concepts. But boy, they have some huge ramifications. Today is not a goosebump message. You'll see what our text is about in a moment. Before we read it, let me refer you back to Romans 12, verse 2. Hang with me right here. What We're going to read in a moment. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We live in a world system that is real and it's opposed to God. And this world system wants to press you into its shape, its mold, its mindset. And the Bible says, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't let yourself be pressed into its mold. The last two weeks I've said some things, and I believe last week, which, by the way, no one came up and was mad at me. I was really worried about some folks being upset with me about some things we had to say in the text. And everybody was like, hey, don't worry about it. It's the truth and, you know, it's great. I needed it. Uh, today there may be some portions in this text that I may make someone upset because of the stance that I will take. I, my goal is that I will take, I believe, a Bible stance. And if I'm not in a Bible stance, that the Lord will let those portions fall on deaf ears and I don't want to corrupt your thinking. All that to say this. If you have high doses, we're going to get practical. If you have high doses in your life of watching the national news channel, and low doses in your life of Scripture, maybe you rely on a, a, a sermon on Sunday morning or a lesson on Wednesday night along with the Sunday morning, and maybe something you hear on the radio driving in a little short spurt, 
but you don't really get along with God and let the Word of God affect you, but you have these high doses of the national media. And right now you may be thinking, oh, no, Jeff, it's okay. I watched the good one. It's good. It's, if we're in the house, it's on. Its little emblem is etched in our plasma TV. Even when we cut it off, it's still kind of on. It's on so much. Uh, I'll promise you something. If that's your ratio, heavy doses of this, very little doses of the Word of God, you are being conformed to this world system. You will be jaded and you will be buying into much that is wrong. You say, no, no, again, I watched the good one. You will be buying into much that is wrong if you don't balance that out with more Word of God than you ever get from the national media. Any of them. With that in mind, let's read Romans 13. Very practical Huge ramifications, simple statements. Verse 1. This will be our message. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Let every person, oh, Christians, right? No, no. he's talking mostly to Christians. There's no doubt this goes beyond Christians. Let every person be subject. Don't be made to be subject. You line yourself up under, you submit, you subject yourself. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Again, not a goosebump message today. We need to have Bible thinking. Subject yourself to the governing authorities. Why? The scripture is going to give us several reasons. This is the word of God. Back to verse 1. For there is no authority except... Oh, so there is some authority. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist, so there are some authorities, those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, so here's the application. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist, practicality, this is just rubber meets the road, Those who resist will incur judgment. And the idea here is righteous earned judgment. You'll pay for it. For rulers, the Bible says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Oh no. There they are. Uh oh. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Question, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Would you like to live a life that you don't have any fear of the governing civil authorities? Paul tells us, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. He is, three times this is going to be said, he is God's servant for your good. Hey, man, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a minister. What do you mean? I'm a minister of God. Oh, so you're a preacher. Oh, no. What are you then? Oh, I'm a police officer. I thought you said you're a minister. Read the Bible. I'm a minister of God. I'm God's servant. You say, are you serious? Is this what it's talking about? Verse 4. He is is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, 
an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, not only for that, but also for the sake of conscience. And then he switches gears, and this is points coming off of those first five verses. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Grace for you. Pay taxes. Why? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Literally, some are carrying out the government and enacting laws and enforcing laws. And some are raising money to pay those salaries and buy that equipment and carry those laws out. You're like, hold on. Is verse 6 like hinting at the IRS? They are the servants of God. And you're like, I don't know that I like this sermon. I don't like where this is going. I came to hear Father's Day. Verse 7. If we didn't get it in verse 6. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes. To whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And that's what God's word says for us to do. So today is going to be super simple. I'm telling you, if you were to take a piece of paper, read this text five times and start writing out the outline, you would come up with the exact same outline I have. There's nothing fancy about the outline. So all we're going to do, here's what the Bible says. Let's talk about it and let's apply it and let's let God work among us. And if he needs to change some of our thoughts and feelings and actions, so be it. If he is strengthening what we already knew, praise the Lord. Let's look at the Word of God. Three things today. Number one, we should be subject to civil government. Grace for you, we need to be subject, line ourselves up under, don't make them have to do it to us. We are to subject ourselves to the civil government. This is all people, not just Christians, and you say, why should we do that? There are at least four reasons given in the text, very straightforward, nothing complicated. I want to hit those four reasons. Why do we need to subject ourselves to the civil government? Reason number one, by the way, this is serious business. We need to align ourselves with the Word of God. We don't need to put this over on a back burner and say, this isn't that important. This is hugely important with great ramifications. Reason number one we need to subject to civil government is this. Government receives its authority from God. Verse number one again. Let every, soul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So if you look this way, here's the picture. God has all authority. He is the creator. He made all of us. We're made things. He can do anything he wants to with our lives. He does not have to answer to us. And in many things, he never explains himself. He just says, here's what I'm doing. I have the authority. I can do anything. But watch. God says, I share my authority with certain people. And scripture gives us four main groups or persons that God shares his authority with. It's God's authority, but I'm going to give you some of it. Group number one, parents over all of their children. Parents over their children. So if there's any young people here this morning, listen carefully. Obey your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. Show respect to your father and your mother because God says they are the authorities in your life as an extension of God's authority. They have the authority. You want God's blessing and favor on your life? Honor your father and your mother. You want to oppose God and have him oppose you? Then dishonor your father and your mother and disobey them and you will pay a price. You're not going to have a good life. 
I just promise you that. Second group, this is from the Bible. You'll study it out. I'm not preaching on it now. Masters and employers over their employees. Obviously, we're here in a time period in America where during those hours we're being paid, the boss gets to call the shots. He tells you what to do or she, she lines out your day and you are to obey that and work to make the company and your boss and employers and owners of the company make them profitable doing your best for them. Group number three. The church has been given authority over all believers. Here's what that means. I'm a believer. I'm in the church as a whole. I'm in Graceview Church. That means Graceview Church and its leadership is over me as a believer. It applies to me and all of us. Everyone in our leadership is subject to the leadership of the church as a whole. And then our topic this morning, the fourth group that we know is Government has authority over all its citizens. And so we listen to this and we read this with 21st century American eyes. We ask ourselves, okay, Jeff, what kind of governments is this talking about in verse 1? Well, I'll tell you, it's talking about democratic republics, which we live in. And I'm very thankful for this time that I live in America. You say, so it's pretty much talking about democracy. Well, it also includes dynasties and monarchies, which if you study the Scripture, there were those in the Bible and mankind was to subject. If you live under a monarchy and a dynasty, then you submit to that government. If you lived in an oligarchy where a small group of people were ruling over the many, then you submit to the oligarchy. If you live among tribes and the tribes kind of fight it out and one chief kind of rises over all the other chiefs and he sets up his little government, then you submit to the tribal chief's government because that's what you're in. And yes, I'll go ahead and say, if you live in totalitarian governments, if you live in a communist country, then your government is a communist country. That's your government. You honor and subject yourself to the communist government or the socialist government or to the dictator that might even be cruel. And you're like, wait a minute, surely it doesn't mean that. Oh, absolutely, it means that's your government. You subject yourself to the government. Why would we say that? Write it down. Because God is sovereign in government appointments. Daniel chapter 2, we'll hit just a couple. We, honestly, I have to keep moving. Several things to mention today. I'm trying to cover this in one week. Daniel chapter 2, there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream and he tells all the wise men, he says, here's what I want you to do. You need to tell me what my dream is and the interpretation. They say, well, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, nah, that's too easy. You, if you really got these powers and abilities, you need to tell me the dream and the interpretation. They say, nobody can do that. He says, fine, I'll give you a little bit of time. If nobody, nobody can do it, all of you are going to be killed. And they're getting ready to kill all the wise men in Babylon. And then Daniel hears about it, the servant of God. And Daniel says, hey, can you get a time out? Let me get with God. Has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you three guys pray, and let's see if God can give some insight. And sure enough, God reveals to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation Watch what Daniel says in verse 20. Learn from it. Daniel answered and said, because God revealed the dream and the interpretation to him, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. So if there's wisdom and there's might, it belongs to God. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He, watch this, God removes kings and sets up 
kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You see what the Bible just said? God removes kings. God sets up kings. And here's what we hear in our 21st century American thinking. Yeah, God sets up the good ones. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We read this a few months ago back at Easter. Look what the Bible says. John 19. The scene is this. Pilate, the governor, this wicked man who blows the easiest case in the history of the world. He has the Son of God, Jesus, on trial. And he ends up crucifying him. And so he goes back and forth between the Jews outside. They're bringing these charges. He goes inside the building, checks with Jesus. And he keeps going back and forth trying to find out what to do with this man. And finally the Jews make a charge and say, he needs to be put to death because he claims to be the son of God. And when Pilate hears this, and now he's really nervous, like what's going on? So verse 9, Pilate entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He just sat there, quiet. Where are you from? In other words, they're out there saying, you, you claim to be the son of God and you're supposed to die for blasphemy because of it. What's going on? Where are you from? Jesus says nothing. So verse 10. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Translation, that's your plan? You're not going to talk to me? And then he says, do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Do you not know I have this authority? Your life is in my hands? Verse 11, Jesus finally answers him and says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Do you see what Jesus just said? Yes, you do have authority over me right now. Pilate has no clue. The God of the universe became a man and is sitting right in front of him. And the God of the universe gave Pilate authority over him. And he's going to have him crucified because he's the only man in town who has the authority to have Jesus crucified. But Jesus says, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you. My Father gave you authority just for such a time as this to do what you are going to do. And we hear that and say, what? So God is condoning when government does wicked things? Romans 13 is not an endorsement of governments that do wrong. It's an endorsement of government as a whole. Why? Because we are sinful people who must have laws. We're not talking about moral laws of God. We must have civil laws because if we don't have them, we're going to go out and do wrong things and we're going to hurt each other. Ideally, We want to get to the day where we do what verses 8 through 10 of Romans 13 says, where we love each other, and if everyone loved each other and loved God properly, we would not need laws or law law enforcement, but we're not there. And so we need government. So before we hit our second idea under this first point, let me say it this way. I believe I'm safe. Watch this. A Christian's subjection to the government is much... Very much like a child's subjection to their parents. I'm sorry I didn't put the person's name. I think it was John MacArthur wrote your next note. Some version of this, probably paraphrased. Subjection to government is without regard to their competency, their reasonableness, even their morality. You say, Jeff, why would we think that? Picture a little child and his mom or dad. They're not really good parents. 
and they're not saved and they have sin in their life and they don't always make the smartest decisions. Do you tell that little child, listen, your parents aren't the best. You don't have to obey. You say, no, we wouldn't tell them that. That's their parents. They're supposed to obey mom and dad and God will take it up with the parents when they're wrong. That's exactly right. Apply that now to the government. I think, again, it's MacArthur. It is not in regard to competency. So I'll obey them if I think they do, they're pretty good at it or if what they're telling us to do makes sense or if they're a moral person, I'll do it. Here's what that means. If that's the stance, here's the translation of that. If they tell me to pay taxes and they're going to spend it on things that I don't think it makes sense, then I'm not paying my taxes. That's wrong. Or here's one. I've heard what he or she said, or I know what they did, or at least what's being talked about, and so I'm not obeying them because they're not a moral person. That is not a biblical stance. Nowhere do you find that position in the Scripture. Answer me out loud. As Paul writes the book of Romans, who is the government? What empire? The Roman Empire. Jews would Jewish Christians would receive the letter to the Romans and they would read it. Catch this. They are literally just starting to trickle back into the city of Rome because six or seven years earlier, Claudius, who was the former emperor back in AD 49 or 50, apparently traditionally says some... Because they, the Jews kept having these turmoils and, and riots and eruptions over someone named Crestus, who we can kind of figure Christ... And everywhere Paul went preaching the Gospels, the Jews stirred up trouble because he dared to say God became a man and died on a cross and is the Savior and the only way to heaven is through Jesus. They don't like that message and so there's constantly this turmoil. And apparently Claudius, the emperor, says, you guys keep having these fights. Here's here's what I'm going to do. All of you Jews, out of my city. And he kicked them out. Imagine, they own property and we're having to leave. And then they're finally trickling back in. And here comes Paul and says, yeah, subject to the governing authorities. That was Claudius. Help me out out loud, you know the answer. As Paul writes, Romans, in AD 56, who is the emperor? What's his name? Say it, Brother Victor. Nero. A madman. Let this sink in. You say, well, I've got some questions about our government. I don't want to go too far there. Okay. Nero's a madman who's having his family members killed. He is going to burn large portions of Rome. Don't know why. Maybe to start a rebuilding program. He's going to blame the Christians just a few years after they read this. Nero is going to have Paul's head cut off, tradition tells us. And it's strong, reliable tradition. Nero is going to have his head cut off. What's Paul's stance? Honor the Roman government. Honor the emperor. Back in his hometown, the local Jewish authority called the Sanhedrin Council... They plot to murder Paul. They imprison Paul. Literally, they try to get the government, the Roman government, to take Paul from point A to point B because they have 40 guys who've taken a vow they're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. And they're just going to go out, overpower the Roman soldiers, kill Paul, even if it costs some of their lives. And the, and the Jewish government's in on it. You know what Paul says? Honor them. Paul, they're going to kill you. Paul, they keep imprisoning you. Paul, they beat you just for your faith. Honor the government. But they're immoral. They're not reasonable. They're incompetent. Honor the governing authorities. Quickly, reason number two. Back in Romans 13, this one's so obvious. We are to submit ourselves to the civil government because government will punish you if you disobey. 
That one's not hard to see. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 4. So in other words, resisting governing authorities, you will incur judgment, and it will be just judgment. It will be what you have earned. Look at verse 4. I said it a while ago. For he is God's servant for your good. If someone is a government official, whether they know it or not, they are God's servant. They may not even know it. They are God's servant. Again, mentioned three times. What that means is these people are God's servants and ministers just as much as a pastor, a Christian teacher, seminar teacher, a missionary. You say, no, those folks are God's servant. They're the people of God. No, these are also God's servants. What is their job? Look back quickly. Chapter 12. You see chapter 12? Look at verse number 19. We hit this two weeks ago. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How are these people God's servant? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Someone does you wrong. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't you take this up to do this. What happens? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. It belongs to me. Don't you do it. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse number 4. God tells us one of the ways he repays. Verse 4, he is God's servant, chapter 13. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So how are these people the servants of God? They serve as avengers. One of the ways God literally chooses to carry out his wrath, it's his punishment, his vengeance. They are serving God. They are in the place of God. So if I could boil this point down right here, watch. Parents, God has assigned to you the rod. So what's the rod? I think it could be a rod. You're like, what? Or, in my dad's case, a belt. And in some of your parents' case, a switch. I forget, it was, was somebody was telling me the other day they had a tree right outside the church. Oh, it was Chris Plunk, because his parents were in town last week. And he was talking about some tree outside the church where his dad pastored, and they couldn't keep limbs on that thing. Because, like, here you go, and they'd light into him, and the rod could be taking privileges away. The rod could be time out. It's so many different things. Taking the keys away, taking the games away. Overnight, you're not doing it anymore, but you promised. Well, no, you blew it. The rod. But watch, only government has been given the sword. So you're thinking, Jeff, what is this sword? I believe with all my heart, the sword is the sword, the electric chair, the lethal injection. You say, Jeff, do you honestly believe in capital punishment? After the flood of Noah, God implemented capital punishment. Here's what he says. If man sheds man's blood, so one person kills another, then by man, obviously implied civil government by man, not that individual retaliating, but the civil government is to carry out God saying, I expect capital punishment to take place. And if it doesn't, the Old Testament says the land is polluted and God will judge. We have a lot of issue in that. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, you really don't find a lot of imprisonments in the Jewish law. Yes, the other nations use some imprisonment. You just don't really see it in the Jewish law. What do you find? Beatings and death. And their crime rate was really, really low. So what's Paul saying? Obey them. They carry not the sword in vain. And the sword obviously has other levels. Fines, imprisonments beatings, 
And I know I'm saying some things that are very politically incorrect in our day, but I'm just telling this is the history of mankind, and the Bible endorses the government's ability to carry those things out. Third reason, very simple, look at verse 3. Government is for our good. Why do we need to subject ourselves? Because they get their authority from God, and because if you disobey you will be punished and because government is for our good look at verse number three rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good can I say a real simple statement God gave us government for our good so what if we started thinking about them that way it's for our good picture a scenario where one of the following would be applied to a scene that you're in right watch you're with someone and they say this so wherever you would apply this uh oh what there's a highway patrol where we have one that comes here by the way uh oh county sheriff one sitting in here right now oh there's the city police uh, there's the meter maid Oh no, here comes the fire marshal. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Why didn't we know that? They're coming. Hurry. Why? There's a game warden. Here comes the building inspector. The IRS called. There's an FBI agent. Oh no, over there's a TSA agent. I want to ask you, what is the difference between, oh no, and praise the Lord? What's the difference? What you're doing. That's the difference. You say, is it really possible to say, praise the Lord? Absolutely. That's what verse 3 is saying. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So you see one of these people like, oh, there's a highway patrol. Praise the Lord. I'm glad they're out here. Here comes the sheriff. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad they're here? But often we don't think that way. Now I want to be honest. Look at verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You say, Jeff, is that an absolute statement? Because I don't think it is. I think there are, are exceptions. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. I'm going to propose to you that verse 3 and 4 is proverbially speaking. Proverbially speaking, though there are exceptions, the government's job is to punish wrongdoers and to approve of those who are doing good. Are there places and times, and even some governments, that have some things where they punish those who are doing the right thing? Yes, you see it in the Bible. And they approve of those who are doing evil things. Yes, it does happen. But proverbially speaking, you can live a life that does not fear any of these people if your conduct is right. Here comes one of those, and I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to borrow from MacArthur and some would say, this one's a bit controversial, but I've thought about it. I think it is extremely biblical, and I stand behind it if you want to write it down. MacArthur says, even the most wicked, godless governments act as a deterrent to sin. You're like, hold on, wait a minute. They're actually committing sin. But he's correct. Even the most wicked, godless governments act as a deterrent to sin. And so if you want to complete that note, I'm going to propose this to you. Watch. Bad government. You see that? Bad government is better than no government. And if you don't believe that, let your mind go. Go home and think about, really, if there were no laws and no law enforcement, then what would happen? You would be wanting, man, we need even some bad government because it's chaos. It is mob rule. It's every time this happens, the strong that are wicked end up 
conquering and abusing the weak. Who may be wicked or the weak who may be good. But the strong, they always end up getting together. You say, well, boy, I'm glad I live in Anderson, South Carolina. And even if our law enforcement were to all quit, everything would just stay hunky-dory here in Anderson. Last night, how many of you lost power? We did. You know it isn't a good thing when power goes out for a long time. If you want a little, little picture of what would happen if there were no law or law enforcement, look in some of these larger cities when the power goes out and when the gangs come in and when it finally gets so bad and the police just say, we're just going to have to pull back and just do a perimeter and we're just going to have to let that and all the business owners stay home and everybody that has a house, they're like, get out of there. Why? Because it is chaos. I'll tell you what happens. Life is endangered every time that happens. Property is endangered by the lawless. I'm telling you, you would not want to live in Anderson if there was no law or law enforcement. I thank God for our government because I sleep peacefully at night. I literally don't sit there thinking, are they coming? Are they going to bust through the door? I don't worry about it. If they try, I do have a little something, but I can also call 911 until they get there. I mean, they can call 911 and I have a little something to help until they get there. Hold them off. Don't try to break in my house. Pick another one. Fourth reason, quickly. Why do we need to subject ourselves to the government? Fourth, very clear out of verse 5, because subjection to the government is part of being right with God. It's just part of being right with God. So yes, listen, obey the authorities. Why? So you don't get a fine. We were down at the beach a few weeks ago. I got a $40 ticket. Why? Because I parked within 20 feet, I think it was, of a stop sign on one, some little back little road, a little sandy pull off, make sure all four tires are off the pavement, just like the thing said. I just forgot to read one line where it says, don't park within 20 feet. You know what? I didn't like paying that. But the fact is, it just it could cause some danger. There's a reason they have that law. Obey the authorities. Why? To avoid imprisonment, to avoid beatings, to avoid death penalty. But over all of that, ladies and gentlemen, grace view, obey the civil authorities so that you will be right with God because when we disobey, I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit starts telling me, thumping that old conscience, you're doing wrong, you're not in the right. John Piper words it this way, quote, he says, I am not submitting to the government because the government has final sway over my life. Catch it again. That is not the reason. Watch again. I am not submitting to the government because the government has final sway over my life. I'm submitting to the government because the one who has final sway over my life told me to. Practical application. Convicting to type. More convicting to say out loud in public. But here's the facts. To break speed limits. To break hunting and fishing regulations. To break noise ordinances. To break building codes. And on and on and on. The Bible has a name for it. It's three letters. Starts with the letter S. It is sin. It's sin. And we don't get to pick and choose. Well, I think that's a good law. I will obey that one. That's ridiculous. I'm not obeying that. Or they're not even here. And I've been on some hunting trips where... Sin was occurring when I was a boy. Glad we didn't get caught. We deserve to get caught. So here's your question, because I know some of you are thinking this. So hold on, let me get this straight. Is this 100% absolute obedience no matter what the government does? Is that what Romans 13 is telling us? 
100% absolute obedience no matter what? No. You say, so there are times where we do disobey the government. Yes. So whenever I get some random calls over here, I can, no, not random causes. Uh, when I have like a, my passionate whim, the thing that I'm curious about or thing I'm passionate about or I'm interested in, my group, then I can, no, I'll give you the guidelines of scriptural, very simple terms, scriptural disobedience to the government if you want to write it down. The scriptural exceptions are these. When obeying the civil government authorities would mean that you have to directly disobey God. You say, when can we disobey scripturally? When to obey the government would be to directly disobey God. Let me give you four quick examples. First one's in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse number 17. The children of Israel, the Israelites are in Egypt. The Egyptian king tells the Hebrew midwives because these Hebrews, these Jews are having babies at such a high rate, the Egyptians are getting nervous. They're going to outrank us, outnumber us. So they tell the Hebrew midwives when they start having children, if it's girls, let them live. If it's boys, you kill them in fantasize. Watch verse 17. Exodus 1, 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I can't expound on that. Let's just be, be clear. He said commit murder, and they said, we can't do that. And I'll be honest, if you read the story, they end up telling a little lie, right? They tell a little lie. Well, these Hebrew women, they're so strong, and they had these kids before we ever get there, and we just weren't able to kill them when they came out of the womb. They lied. And I can't explain it, but God blessed them in their lie because they didn't commit murder. To do what you say would mean that we are committing murder, and that's against God. Now, if you want to turn in your Bible, grab this real quick. We're going to look at two here. Daniel chapter 3. Look, if you would, Daniel chapter number 3. We're kind of familiar with these. Here's the scene. Three Hebrew children. These are young men. Their names have been changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they're living in exile in Babylon. Babylon conquered Israel, carries these boys along with Daniel out from Israel, and they take them over to Babylon. And they put them in parts of their government. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who's probably the most powerful man in the Bible, humanly speaking, probably the greatest king in the Bible outside of Jesus himself, he makes this huge 90-foot tall statue, 90 by 9 feet tall, and he makes a law that when the music plays, everyone's supposed to bow down. But you're familiar with this story. Look at verse 15. Verse number 15, let me find it. I've got to flip over. There we go. It's a long verse. I've got to find the beginning of it. Yes, verse 15. So the music plays. Everybody bows down. The three Hebrew children do not. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears about it, and he's going to give them another chance. So verse 15. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. In other words, I'm going to give you another shot. If you'll do it, it'll be well and good for you boys. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Is there a God who will be able to deliver you? Boys, don't cross me. I mean it. The fire is real. Everybody bowed but you. We're going to give you one more shot. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to get together and see what we're going to do. We can already tell you what's going to happen. If this be so... You're going to throw us in the fire. That's what it means. 
Our God whom we serve. You want to know which God? We'll tell you. The one true God. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let's say you put us in there and we die. If not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why? That is idolatry. That is breaking our laws. We cannot. God says there's only one God. He tells us do not bow down to idols and worship idols and make idols. You've done that. We can't obey you. Flip over to chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 deals with Daniel himself. Daniel is a high-ranking man now in the Persian government. In fact, he's number two in all the world, apparently the second most powerful man among all the others that are kind of his equals but a level below him. And they want to trip Daniel up. And they, so they go to King Darius and they kind of trick him in. He was a little naive. And they say, listen, you mean to, need to make this law where no one can pray or entreat any gods or any people for 30 days except you, O king, because they know Daniel's pattern and they want to get him in trouble. They're very jealous of Daniel. Verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Sign it. This is a good thing. You need to do this. Sign this. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10, when are we to disobey the government? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows open in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I know some take this to be, it's kind of, you know, in your face. I'm going to make sure you see me. I think the text kind of says this was already his pattern. The window was already open. He was not going to change his prayer life because of some law that was trying to keep him from praying. So here's, here's Daniel's dilemma. I can obey God and pray, or I can do this that says for 30 days not to pray. And Daniel says, I'm just going to pray. And you guys know the story. He gets thrown in the lion's den. Acts. I'm sorry. Would you go ahead and lo- locate Acts chapter 4. I want you to turn there because it would be good for you to see this. Acts chapter 4. The setup for it is this. Matthew 28. Matthew 28 verse 19 if you look at the screen. Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore, so watch, here's God's word, here's what God says do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go, make disciples, preach the gospel, win people to Christ. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Boys, go tell everybody, spread the gospel, tell the good news, I'm the only way to Christ. Lead them to faith in Christ. And they did that. Acts chapter 4, here's the scene. They heal Peter and John. Two of them are going into the temple. There's a man who's lame. He's 40-something years old. He's never walked a day in his life. In the name of Jesus, they heal him. Everyone sees this, and they know that's the lame man that's 40-something years old. He's never walked a day in his life. What in the world? How do you do this? Peter uses the opportunity to preach about Jesus. Well, what are the Jewish authorities who hate Jesus? They killed Jesus. What are they going to do? Look at Acts chapter 4, verse number 18. Acts 4. 18, 
So they called them, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish government, the, the local authorities. They're in charge. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You guys understand? Don't ever do that again. But Peter and John answered them. Question. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You guys better never preach or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. Do you understand? Well, what you need to understand is we can't help it. We can't help it. We're going to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. Do you really think we're supposed to obey you and not obey Christ? They continue teaching and preaching. Chapter number 5. Flip over there quickly. Verse number 27. This is a, a lot has happened here. I'm just going to hit these verses. Verse 27. When they brought them. So this time it's not just Peter and John. The disciples, multiple of them, have now been teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, directly disobeying the government. Verse 27, And when they brought them in, they set them before the council, 71 of them. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man, talking about Jesus, you intend to bring his blood on us, like his death is our fault. Like, I want to jump in right there. Like, you guys are idiots. It is your fault. His blood is on your head. Verse 29, classic answer. Peter and, John, Peter and the apostles answer, We must obey God rather than men. Wednesday night, I think we'll have a little bit of a missions emphasis. And here's something we need to remember. Any government around the world that says, Do not teach or preach about Jesus must be disobeyed. They must be disobeyed. Why? Because God outranks government. And when their commands is in direct opposition to God's commands, we obey God, not men. Here's what that means. The Hitlers of the world, the Stalins of the world are not to be obeyed. Those people who did those atrocities should have stood up and said, I'm not doing it. Well, then you will be court-martialed, you'll be killed, whatever. That's fine. I'm not doing it. And they mindlessly went along with what these evil men did. They should have been opposed and disobeyed. Romans 13. Second thought this morning. Not only should we subject ourselves to the civil government. We should pay our taxes. Look at verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Jeff, what do you think New Testament giving is? I think it is giving to Christians who have need. I think it is giving to Spreading the gospel at home and abroad, and that has lots of levels to it. And I think New Testament giving entails Christians paying their fair share of taxes. Why? Watch. Because it takes money to operate a government. It takes money, an effective government. It takes money to operate schools. It takes money for our roads. It takes money to protect property and people on the local level and on the international level. It takes money to do this. These people are the servants of God and they're worthy of their hire. In fact, I'm going to go tell you, they should be making more money than they make. On a lot of levels. Friday night. Alarm kept going on in the church in the evening. First one was about 10 o'clock. I come up here, I look around, I reset the code. Told the alarm company, don't send the police. I live close by. I'll go check it out. Kind of knew a little something was going on. Thought that's what it was. Hit the code, went back home. 45 minutes later, I get this, another phone call. I'm like, what in the world's going on? Drive back up here. And I said, listen, don't tell the police to come. They'd already dispatched. So long story, 
I get here, and there's a county sheriff's SUV in the front. There's a county sheriff's SUV in the back. I open my truck door, and it's not the little inside. It's the boo, boo, boo. The whole neighborhood, like, what is going on? I'm seeing lights panning, you know, a light panning our sanctuary in here. And I'm coming in, and it's, it's so loud. And I hit our code, and it's finally boo, boo. It stops, and I'm like, hello, and the county sheriff. I'm like, well, I'm the pastor here. Okay, uh, have you been in here lately or something? And I, I, was, I come around the corner, and lo and behold, it was a former student, Jeff Bartlett. And I said, who is that? And he told me his name, and Officer Taylor. And I was like, dude, I hadn't seen you so long. And we started chatting. He quickly got back to work. Guys, listen, I'm not going to go over it all. It's a long story. But our, our ladder was let down right back here that goes up to the attic. And you could see it, and it's not usually down. And then up in the attic, there was a, one of these Werner ladders was up into a little square thing like a tile that goes up in up above. And they're like, is this, is this normal? I'm like, honestly, no. That ladder's hardly done. We're not supposed to leave that down. And I'm, looking, I'm like, I have no idea why that ladder's going up in there. And so Officer Taylor and, and the female officer that was with him, they go up there. And I appreciated his honesty. He's got his weapon drawn, and he's like, well, here it goes. He says, if I get my face shot off, I'm probably going to get my face shot off. And I even mumbled. He's like, this is scary. And he sticks his head up through this little hole, and he's looking around, and thankfully nothing happened. Would you do that for what they make? It's all fun and games on Sunday morning. It's real on a Friday night at 11 o'clock. And he has a family at home. Jesus, should we pay our taxes? Jesus has rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Jesus paid his taxes. You say, I want to be like Jesus. Pay your taxes. Verse 7, the taxes listed there, you know what they refer to? Taxes on persons, taxes on our income, taxes on property, taxes on goods, taxes on imports and exports. It's all covered in verse number 7. Taxes of a, a conquered nation paying taxes back to the conquering nation. This was the Jews to the Romans, and I know they hated it. I'll tell you, there are two types of taxes we especially dislike. Those that we don't think are fair, and then there's those that we think are just straight out unjust, going to unjust causes. You say, Jeff, if, if our tax money is going to things that we totally disagree with and we think they're sinful, then we can withhold our taxes. I can't find that in the Scripture. They may spend it unjustly, but the paying of it is just by the citizenry. I believe that is the Bible stance. To get even more practical, not only is it right with God, it is logical. You say, well, I just don't know that. Okay, watch. No one should opt out of supporting their part of the government. Why? Because we all receive benefit from it. You say, the government doesn't do one thing for me. How did you get here this morning? Did you walk down by the creek and through the wood and across the meadow? You say, no, I drove on the road. Don't say the government doesn't do something for you. Praise God for those speed limits and those that enforce it. You would not want it otherwise. Why do we have clean water and we don't just have sewage run off like a lot of other places because somebody's regulating. I know we don't like these regulations. Energy, again, transportation, protection, locally. There are nations out there that want to wipe us out. Why are they not doing it? Because someone's standing a post and it takes money to take care of these people and we're really not doing a good job when they leave that post. Should have been in your notes. I'll say it this way. If we cheat on our taxes, it's both selfish and sinful cheating on our taxes is selfish and sinful and right now you're thinking boy he was right this is not a goosebump message last last note this morning last point 
comes out of verse number 7. We should honor governing authorities. Subject ourselves, pay our taxes, honor governing authorities. Verse number 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I'm going to talk as quickly as I can, but I want everybody to catch what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you my stance. I can be corrected here, but you better have some, some good stuff for me, okay? I'm going to tell you where I'm at. Those of you that have been here for the last two years, and I'm coming up on two years starting August 1st, you probably maybe didn't notice, but I'm sure some of you have noticed, this guy is not very political from the pulpit. We've had a big election back in 2016. We had another election. We've come up on these other ones. He just never gets up and kind of coaches us and, and hands things out and all these things and kind of primes the pump. Why doesn't he do that? Does he have no opinions? I have my opinions, but it is my strong opinion that my calling in this position behind this platform in this time period is not to use this to sway people to vote for one candidate or one party over another. That is not my calling. That's not my calling. You say, Jeff, there's a lot of preachers going around the country call themselves reverend, and they do that all the time. I know. I can name some names. I've never heard one person say, man, you need to hear Reverend so-and-so's message on the gospel. Thousands are going to get saved from it. It's tremendous. I never hear it. I hear constant activism from it. And all I would say to them is, call yourself an activist. Drop the reverend title. I never hear you preach the gospel. Stop it. If you're going to be a pastor or a preacher, preach the gospel. Stop using it as a bully pulpit for your political opinions and party. That's my stance. You say, then what is your job then? My job is to preach the scriptures to my congregation in such a way that we get a biblical worldview so that when we go to the polls, we honor God more than our personal preferences. And I don't have to tell you who to vote for, what party, what candidate, none of those things. Chip Ingram really helped me a few years ago when I watched this. I'm going to throw it out to you quickly. Rewind to 2016, will you? Go back to 2016. Let's say about this time of the year. Maybe earlier, earlier than this. Back to the spring of 2016. Chip Ingram asked his congregation once, he said, so do this, you're rewinding. Picture in your mind the candidate in a presidential election you are most excited may win the election. This is important. Picture the candidate. You're like, oh, I got mine. Y'all remember the candidates, right? So, I mean, you got, you got, you got Hillary and Bernie and... Um, some more, and then you got obviously President Trump won. Uh, you got uh, Rubio. Um, you got uh, Bush, uh, Cruz, Ted Cruz. I mean, y- y'all remember? You got like three or four over here, and then you got about 150 in the other one, right? Remember that? So here's this thing: picture in your mind the candidate you're most concerned, that you're most excited about, that they may win the election. And then he says, "Now flip, do this, go back." Picture the candidate you're the most concerned may win the election. You're like, boy, I really hope I'm excited about that one. That would be great. But of all of them, just not that one. So I'm doing this one time, watching this video with Chip Ingram, and then he blows my mind. He says, here's what you need to understand. The candidate you're most excited about is the same candidate another brother or sister in Christ on the other side of the room is most concerned about. Catch it? The one you're most excited about is someone else's biggest concern. And I know how we answer that. Oh, no, no, but I'm right. 
You don't understand. I'm right. They need to get up to speed with the Bible. And here's where I meddle, and all I'll say is this. We live in a two-party country where sometimes one party is accused of being, you're unrealistic. That is not fair. That is not sustainable. I'm just telling you, you keep doing that. It's upside down. It's going to implode. We got to, you guys got to stop. It's got to stop somewhere. You can figure out who that is. You guys are mindless. But then the other party would accuse the other one of saying, you're unloving and heartless and selfish. One would say, you're mindless. Oh, yeah, well, you're heartless. Who's right? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Because it varies. Oh, I shouldn't have said that because I tipped my hand. Would you please remember this? Romans 13. The government has a role. The church has a role. The government's role is temporal. It's in this life. Please remember this. No amount of laws will ever change people's hearts. And the church has a role that is not just temporal. It is eternal. The government's role is to restrain evil in the temporary. The church's role is to try to help people become saved and get eternal life by faith in Christ. And then once they have that, let the Holy Spirit in them develop love and walk with God in obedience out of love. Let love be the force. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Each one has a role. Both are the servants of God. Each serves a function. If we'll start looking at it that way, we'll realize the government has a job to do. And and Romans 13 is much bigger than American politics. God is not a Republican and God is not a Democrat. It's much bigger than that. God's not even American. It's okay. And then we we have the church and they have a huge job to do. said that to say this. I only have a couple of more notes and I'm going to skip some things. If you're a Christian, you're a dual citizen. You say, what do you mean dual citizen? You're a citizen of the United States. I am. I was born into it. But that's only for a few years. If you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven. And you need to know this order. Here's the order, right? As a dual citizen of heaven and the United States on the lesser, our foremost allegiance, our foremost allegiance is to Christ and the gospel go into all the world. Christ and the gospel. Far more than any political party, economic system. And I know our economic system here. It's really good. We're very affluent because of it and all of our liberties. But man, our allegiance is not to an economic system over all the other ones around the world. We're blessed. I believe it's the best one. We're really blessed. I love our government. I believe it's the best one. But we're Christians before we're Americans. We're Christians before you're whatever party affiliation you consider yourself to be in. We're Christians above selfish programs. I kind of wonder sometimes, I see some who call themselves Christians, they get really energetic about politics and you can't talk to them five minutes. They turn everything toward politics and rarely do they talk about Christ. Something's out of balance. I don't have time to hit these texts. Do you guys have Titus 1, 2, and 3 on your note? I can't remember. Is that reference anywhere there? Titus 1, 2, and 3. Can I give you the quick thought? We're supposed to honor our government. We live in a sad day. But there's a lot of disdain for government officials. When many are doing a great job, and even those who aren't doing such a great job are still ordained of God and are extension of God's authority. I'll share this very quickly. About 20 years ago, I was not really liking a certain high-ranking government official. And my pastor was preaching. I don't remember where he was preaching. All I remember is I was, from the pulpit, I was sitting on this side right back there. 
And he made this statement. He said, if this person were to walk in the back of our church right now, he said, I would expect every person in here to stand out of respect to the office. And I did, but I don't like them. They're not moral. And I kept reading the Bible and I realized, you know what? He's exactly right. Do you have 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17? Do you guys have that? I don't have time to read it and dissect it. We're to honor government officials. The king, the emperor on the national level, governors on the local level, and all those that are beneath them. Boy, I really, I can't do it. Time's gone. You need to go home and look at Acts 23, verses 1 through 5, and couple it with Exodus 22, 28, because here's what you'll find. We are not to revile. A, oh, boy, I need to hit that one. Can we show, can we skip ahead Exodus 22, 28? Is that on there? Look at Exodus 22. I'm going to hit this fast. So, yes, Christians are not to speak evil of their rulers. Grace view. If this is you, what should we do? Stop it. Look at Exodus 22. This is the Bible. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Real fast. Hit, hit Exodus 20, or, or Acts 23. Hit Acts 23. Watch this. Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. He looks intently at the council and Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He's not saying I'm always right. He's saying, but I, when I realize I'm wrong, I, I stop doing it. And the high priest, 71 men, the high priest up in a general direction. Paul has very poor eyesight, apparently. And the high priest, Ananias, hears him say this and commands those who, those who stand by Paul. Translation. Bust him in the mouth. So Paul stands, gentlemen, I've lived in all good conscience before God until now. He's on trial. How dare you go around talking about Jesus and we've told you not to. Guys, I'm living, I have an honest, I have a reason I do this. High priest said, bust him in the mouth. We have every reason to believe that they did this. I don't know if Paul is on the deck. I don't know if he's about to fall down and blood's flowing. Watch verse 3. Paul said to him, watch, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You have me stricken? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Watch verse 4. Those who stood by, I almost picture them with their hand raised again. Would you revile God's high priest? In other words, you're going to talk to the high priest that way? Do you see it? Here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the chain reaction again. I've lived in all good conscience. High priest, bust him in the face. Boom. God's going to strike you, you white. Well, you look good on the outside. How dare you do that? You're supposed to be judging me and you're up there breaking the law. I've not even been tried and you're having me beaten. How dare you talk to the high priest that way? Verse 5 is key. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What that means? Whoa, I'm sorry. Which one? That's, I'm sorry. He's wrong, but Paul's attitude is, I'm not supposed to speak evil. You say, Jeff, are we not allowed to respectfully disagree? I believe we can respectfully disagree. We are not to go around like I've heard preachers before back in the 90s. Somebody ought to kill that guy. Like, what? I wish somebody and they would say the president's name. That's pronouncing a curse. Read your Bible, man. You're way out of line. Stop it. Stop talking about our government authorities. You say, then what do we need to do? I lied. I'm going to do one more verse. And I'm closing on this, I promise. 1 Timothy 2, look at it. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Pray that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You ever get the feeling that when one political party is in power, 
the opposition literally hopes they do poorly. They never report any good that they do because we want them to do poorly so we can win the next. Guys, if you're a Democrat, you should be praying for this president. Republicans, when the next Democratic president comes up, you need to be praying for them. Why? Pray they'll be successful. Why? Because you live under them and they're your authority.